Let's uh, get going with the word of prayer. Gracious Lord, thank you for gathering us together to read, to study your word so that we might be able to profess and confess the full deity of our Lord Jesus, who is risen and reigns, has authority over all things. Bless our time together, we pray in his holy name. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, we're getting started today with the first actual heresy. We've spent the last couple of weeks um, introducing this and talking about the importance of being orthodox. And now we're actually going to dig into our first heresy. Before we do, any questions or reflections from what we've talked about so far and why it's important that we are orthodox? Any lingering thoughts from last week that you wanted to, to raise? Okay. Well, then we're going to dig in today with um, the first heresy. It's not the first one to have sprung up necessarily, but in many ways, it's one that overshadows all the other heresies. It's a heresy about the divinity of Jesus. It's known as Arianism. We'll learn why in just a moment. Um, actually, we'll start out with this little anecdote, story, true tale um, about Arius, for whom Arianism is named. And Arianism was reputed, repudiated at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. And this is where we get our Nicene Creed, at least the first draft of it. It had to be continually fine-tuned over the next um, several decades. But at the Council of Nicaea was the, is where the Nicene Creed was primarily drafted and adopted by church leaders from throughout the known world at the time. They all um, descended upon the, the town of Nicaea, I think it's in uh, modern-day Turkey, um, there to, to kind of hash out and to profess, what do we believe about these things? Because it was a, a live question, a live issue. This guy, Arius, and his teachings were really starting to take hold throughout the empire. Well, there's another guy who was there at that council, somebody whom I think you know, he was Nicholas of Myra. Anybody know who Nicholas of Myra is? You know him better today as St. Nick. St. <laughs> Nick was also there. And the story goes that not only was Nicholas of Myra there and present at the Council of Nicaea, but at one point, in the meeting, in the proceedings, Arius was standing up and he was espousing his teaching. He was laying out what he believed about Jesus, about his divinity, or rather the lack thereof. And Myra, Nicholas of Myra, is just sitting in his seat stewing. He cannot believe the blasphemy that he's hearing. And he's, he's looking around. He, he can't believe that his, his fellow church leaders are permitting this guy to espouse these false heretical teachings about Christ. And finally, he just can't take it anymore. He gets up out of his seat, walks across the room, and slaps Arius across the face. He decks him, right? It was like going to the Oscars. You know, like, right? Santa Claus did this. He was naughty. He was not nice. He actually... He, he got in trouble for it, uh, but he, he apologized. He professed you know, before um, everyone, and he was, he was forgiven. He was nearly stripped of his office, apparently. But um, Gene Veith, Lutheran um, cultural commentator, he wrote an article on this a number of years ago now um, as a little bit of a, a parody, but encouraging among all of our different Christmas celebrations and you know, traditions, perhaps we, not, we ought to adopt, have a slappy Christmas as well. 
Just a few of his ideas. I'll share this from you. He says, uh, the poor girl's stockings have become part of our Christmas imagery. That's another story about Nicholas. He says, so should the slap. He says, not a violent hit of the kind that got the good bishop in trouble, but just a gentle admonitory tap on the cheek. Hmm? This should be reserved not for out-and-out non-believers, but for heretics. That is, people in the church who deny its teachings. Christians who forget about Jesus and people who try to take Christ out of Christmas. He says, we will compile a list of those who are naughty, those who are nice, and those who are Nicene, right? <laughs> On Christmas Eve, he says, flying reindeer, they pull his sleigh full of gifts, and after he comes down the chimney, he'll steal into the rooms of people dreaming of sugar plums who think they can do without Christ, and he will slap them awake. And then, of course, he says we need some new Christmas carols as well. Santa Claus is coming to slap. Uh, de- <laughs> deck the Aryan with bats of holly. <laughs> Frosty the Gnostic, uh, that's another heresy we'll have. And then how the Aryans stole Christmas. Um, and then my personal favorite, Rudolph the Red knows Jesus. Oh. <laughs> Rudolph the Red. Anyway, take that for what it is, but uh, it is a true story about our guy, St. Nicholas. And it says something about how seriously God's people have taken their profession of faith, the teaching and doctrines about Christ. It matters. Uh, it really matters. And we're going to start with a little quiz on your handout here. And there's an asterisk with this. I put it at the bottom. This is for fun only. This is not graded, and it is not a verdict on your faith, okay? <laughs> but real quick, we're going we're gonna to go through these. Just circle true or false, okay? You don't have to say it out loud, and we'll, we'll share the answers at the end of today's Bible study. Number one. Jesus saves us by providing the perfect example for us to follow. True or false? Number two. (laughs) Number two. There was a time in history when Jesus did not exist. Number three. Jesus is one with God the Father and not merely like him. True or false? Number four. Jesus is the greatest of all God's creations. And number five, since we believe in the Trinity, we don't believe in God's unity. True or false? All right, we'll come back to the answers to that at the end of our Bible study. Let's talk about Arianism. What is Arianism? Arianism is a heresy that denies Jesus' full divinity. It denies that Jesus is himself fully God, as we confess, of course, in that very Nicene Creed, that he is true God and true man. Arianism denies this. this. So let's just talk a little bit about uh, this guy Arius himself. Here is a a picture of him. It's taken with a Kodak camera. Um, 1,700 years ago. Uh, When did Arius live? A.D. 270 to 336. Um, That Council of Nicaea was in 325, so he was about 55 when that came about. He was a priest in Alexandria in Egypt, which is a a really significant place for the early church. And so this is a guy who would have had, by uh, virtue of his station, his location, a lot of pull, a lot of clout among the churches. He was known as a brilliant theologian and a clever politician. Mm. 
Not only could he be really sharp with his teachings, with his ideas, but he knew how to make a message. He knew how to get his word out and try to curry favor with others who uh, believe differently from him. It's a little bit about Arius. Don't know a ton about him, but that's sufficient for the time being. And what did Arius want? Again, like we said last week or a couple of weeks ago, nobody ever says, I want to be a heretic when I grow up. Okay? So what did Arius want? How did he end up in this situation? Well, what he was really wanting to safeguard and to protect, what he was zealous to defend more than anything, is above all, Arius wanted to protect God's unity. He wanted to protect God's unity. He knew that this is the foundation of our belief about God, that God is one. Just and like the Hebrews. Just like the Hebrews. Okay, so it's there in the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We call this monotheism, right? One God. And this is foundational for our beliefs. And Arius said, even as Christians, we have not stopped, we haven't become like the Greeks, like our pagan neighbors, because they weren't atheists. What were they? They, they were pan, pantheists, many of them, multi-theists, right? They believe that there are all any number of gods, in the pantheon, this is the collection of all of their different gods. And Arius says, that we don't want to fall down that same path, right? We are distinct and different. We believe that God is one. And as he heard about how Jesus was being talked about, professed, worshipped, he said, no, 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 no. We have separated, we've gone far beyond what we ought to believe as Christians. And he had some scripture to back himself up. Remember, we said this, that you know, part of the reason why it's important that we're orthodox is that Satan knows scripture too, as well as heretics. So one passage that he would, uh, he would go to was in Proverbs chapter 8. Go ahead and turn to Proverbs chapter 8. Psalms, Proverbs... As a side note, I'm having all the confirmation kids memorize the books of the Bible in order. And one of them raised their hand this week and they said, Pastor, you're having us memorize the books of the Bible, so why is there a table of contents? <laughs> After, like St. Nick, I slapped him. Um, no, 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 I didn't. I promise I didn't. That'll get me in trouble. Uh, so, listen. It's important. Do you really want to be looking at the table of contents every, in every Bible study for the rest of your life saying, I don't know where the book of the Bible is? It's important for us to know where they are so that you can grab it at a moment's notice. Maybe you've got a Bible that doesn't have a table of contents. That does happen. It's important for us to know what, what is the order, even just getting that gestalt, that big picture of all of the different books of the Bible, to know in what order they came in, the difference between Old Testament and New Testament. On and on it goes. So, if you've ever been thinking, I've all got the table of contents. Hey, praise God for the table of contents. Sometimes I still need it too when I'm looking up Habakkuk or Zephaniah, something like that. Um, but I'm still making them memorize the books of the Bible. All right. Oh, before we look at uh, Proverbs, just a, a few more words we said about Arius, about Arianism, okay? Some of these core central tenets of Arianism. So he believed that Jesus was not co-equal or co-eternal with God the Father. Jesus is not equal with God the Father. He's not eternal, that is to say, from time immemorial or before time. That's not Jesus. 
He was anxious to preserve the distinction between creator and creation. An important distinction, one that we still want to uphold as Christians, to distinguish between God Almighty, between the, the creator, and between his creatures. When you start to blur that and muddle it, that's how you end up into other kinds of heresies. So he was anxious to preserve that distinction. Then thirdly, as we've already suggested, he really sought to protect this monotheism and God's unity. That was a core central tenet of Arianism. So what kind of scriptures would he go to in order to assert his teachings? Did I jump ahead? I kind of jumped ahead, didn't I? All right. Um, I asked on here, can you think of any other religion that has similar concerns? Modern day religions that might have similar concerns to Arius. JWs. JWs. Okay. So JWs, Jehovah's Witnesses. Also, very, I mean, in many respects, Jehovah's Witnesses are like modern day Arians. They do not profess the divinity of Jesus, um, and they also want to uphold that unity of God and that very distinction. Good. Can you think of any others? Say again. Unitarianism, yep, no, not going to be Trinitarian. How about ones that aren't even considered Christian in any respect? I'm thinking of something like Islam, where Islam also wants to exalt the absolute uh, individuality and unity of Allah as being utterly separate and apart from. Again, we share that desire and that interest, but where we differ is our belief about who Jesus is and whether he is part of that unity and, and distinction of God. All right, then. Number three on, on your handouts. We make a brief case for Arianism. Arius insisted that there was a time when he was not. This was his little motto, his, uh, his catchphrase that he used to espouse his teachings. There was a time when he was not. Who's he? Jesus. He's saying there was a time when Jesus was not. And if there was a time when Jesus was not, then he can't be equal with God the Father. If there was a, a period, a season, when he was not there with, with the Father, with the Creator, then he must be less than him. So then, to Proverbs. Proverbs 8, starting with verse 22, says this. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up. At the first, before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth, before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. Now, uh, this is uh, spoken from a voice, and it says in Proverbs 8, it's called wisdom. Okay, wisdom is speaking here. Um, what about this do you think, why do you think Arian, Arius would invoke this in order to demonstrate that Jesus was less than God the Father? And I should say that it was, it was commonly held already at the time of Arius that the voice speaking here in Proverbs 8 is Christ, is the Christ. What about this would make you degrade his position in the cosmos and in the relationship with the Father? Is there anything that you picked up on? Okay, he's brought forth, which is to say that he is part of creation. 
Now, it's kind of tricky because you hear it and you're like, well, but it sounds really good. He's saying at the first, even before the beginning of the earth, and Arius would say, Jesus is the greatest of all of God's creatures. If we're doing power rankings of creation, boom, Jesus is right there, right at the top. Hippopotamus, number two, number three, duckbill platypus. But first, first is Jesus, creature greatest of all of God's creations. So he would point to this. He would also point for a New Testament reading to Jesus' own words in John 14. Jesus says, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Arius would say, case closed. What more do you need to know? Jesus himself has said, the Father is greater than I. All right, just stop there. What are you thinking? How would you respond to this? And when Arius puts this forth and says, listen, Jesus himself says the Father is greater than I. Proverbs 8 tells us he's the first of creations, which means he is a creature. Ergo, he is not equal with God. From what we've already seen, how might you respond? Or what, what jumps out at you? Part of it, you're thinking like, this is pretty tough. Like, oh gosh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Need some more coffee, then we'll, we'll get some more ideas, right? Yeah, Esther? Well, if you take in context the rest of Scripture, um, the first chapter in John, in the beginning was the Word. Okay. The word was with God and the word was God. Boom. Okay, so Esther's get, getting ahead of us a little bit, but that's good. Because she says, you, you want to take this verse and that passage from Proverbs in the context of all of Scripture. We talked about this, right, last week. We said this is why it's important to have that hermeneutic, though that principles of biblical interpretation. In particular, this one of we're going to read all of Scripture, this principle of coherence. We're going to look at all of Scripture and read it together, and not just cherry-pick a few verses here and there, which sounds like, on the face of it, like, wow, okay, yeah, that sounds like Jesus is, is lesser. Okay, good. Even if we were just to take this verse, is there any way to read that or to understand that in a way that doesn't say, well, Jesus is not God? Is there a way for Jesus to say, the Father is greater than I, where still they are co-equals or co-eternal? Yeah, Bob? Simple distinction of a father and a son. Okay, simple distinction of a father and son. So the father is greater than I, but we are one. We are united. We're of, of the same essence. Yeah, good. Other thoughts on that? I think this is important to recognize. I mean, because there's, there's other language in the scriptures. We'll talk about how um, at the end in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about how all things are subordinated to the Son, and the Son himself is submissive to the Father. This, uh, this suggests a differentiation in vocation, but not in essence. The calling of the Son to carry out the Father's will. He himself is the lieutenant to, to God the Father. But he in, in his the essence, his ontology, his very being, is still equal with God. A very God, a very God. Okay? So Arius, he makes a case, and you can see why some people would follow him, as many did. But let's, let's go deeper into our, our refutation and seeing why it's wrong. Why this notion that Jesus is not equal and, and not divine. Yeah, go ahead, Sandy. Was uh, Arius a 
Oh, interesting. Uh, why, why do you say that? Well, because uh, he, where is it? Oh, yeah, In Proverbs. Yeah. He drew, the, he drew a circle on the face of the deep. He drew a circle on the, on the face and of the deep. that's de- the flat earther. Oh, there you go. Yeah, Sandy is asking, was Arius also a flat earther? Not as far as we know, but uh, almost everybody was at that point. So uh, it's probably, you, know, you think about it. Yeah, well, I mean, in, in, in many respects. So we won't hate on him for that. Um, but, there's, but we've got other things that we can go after him for. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's talk about uh, what's at stake in this. So what's at stake if Jesus is not divine? And maybe you think that's just a, no-brainer, but let's just lay it out. If Jesus is not the Son of God who reveals the Father, then God remains hidden to you and me. Jesus is the one who shows to us our fatherly heart. No one has ever seen God, the Scripture says, but the, the Son of God is only one. He has made him known. So that's not to say that folks in the Old Testament did not know God at all, but if we truly want to understand and uh, experience the Father's heart, we can only do that through our Lord Jesus. He is the one who makes him known. Apart from Jesus, then, the picture that you get of God becomes corrupted. He looks more like a disengaged landlord than a compassionate Savior. This God, he doesn't care about us. He's separated from us. Yeah, he's, he's almighty, but he's not necessarily compassionate. And thirdly, If Jesus is not divine, if he is not equal with God, then he's merely a good moral example, the best, and salvation is just a matter of your effort. Try harder. Try harder. If we don't have a Savior who has already done this vicariously in our place and in our stead, then it still just falls back on us, and we end up having to say, like this guy, Do it! Just do it! Week after week, that would just be the sermon. Just do it! What's wrong with you? <laughs> Sheila Booth, who actually became a Christian, which is interesting. But moving right along. Yes, Bob. <laughs> One more that, that strikes me. If Jesus was not fully God, we don't take sin seriously. Mm, if Jesus because was not fully God, we don't take sin seriously. Sin yes. Only God's life. Yes. It's a great point. So if. If Jesus is not God, if he's just a guy, nice guy, martyr, it devalues, uh, not, not devalues, but we don't, we don't fully understand the weight of sin. The fact that the cost of it, and indeed our own worth too, right? What's the price to be paid for you and me? That's what he says. Yeah. What can a man give in, in exchange for his life? Yeah, well, yeah. he can't. It takes someone more than a man. Yes, that's exactly right. Very good. All right, so let's walk through some of uh, the, the reasons and the refutations for Arianism. First of all, Arius mistakes generation for creation. And this is a fine distinction, but one that is significant, is supremely significant, for understanding how Jesus is able to have the exalted position equal to, the God, equal to God the Father, while still the scripture speaking in ways which um, you know, could be misunderstood as him being a creation. This goes back to, and this was, in many cases, this is where the, the, the battleground was fought, fought at the Council of Nicaea. This distinction between generation and creation. Okay? 
First of all, it goes back to one little letter, one iota, right? And you ever heard somebody say, I don't care, one iota, right? Iota or Yoda is the Yoda, not like the guy in Star Wars, but it's a letter in the Greek alphabet. It's essentially the letter I, okay? And so um, this, people who are, are skeptics or critics of Christianity, if they know just enough about church history to be dangerous, this is something that they'll point to sometimes and say, oh, you Christians, you battle over one little iota. Because here's where the distinction was made. Um, for the Orthodox who are professing the divinity of Christ, it'd say Jesus is homoousius. Let me hear you say homoousius. <laughs> so that homoousius is Greek for of the same being. Your ousia is your essence. Okay? He is a, of the same being, the very self, homoousius. This is the word that they use. Now, we should say, this is not in, in itself a biblical word. This was a, a word that was coined by early Christians in order to describe and to define this relationship of Jesus to God the Father. Say so they're homoousius. And it's there in the Nicene Creed. Anybody guess where homoousius shows up? It was originally written in Greek. You have an English translation. Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. So that mouthful, being of one substance, homoousius. Homoousius with the Father. Okay. By contrast, the Arians were saying, no, he's not homoousius, he's homoousius. Homoousius. That extra Yoda changes the word from of the same substance to of a similar substance. He's like God, but he is not himself God and equal to the Father. Okay? One little letter. It's a small thing, but it might not be too much to say that the stake of all history rode on that little Yoda. Because if Jesus is just like God the Father, the game is lost. Everything is lost. Generation then, the, and the Orthodox Christian position holds to the homoousius, that Jesus is begotten, not made. He's begotten, not made, sent forth from the Father, but not created the way that God made humans, for instance. By his generation, he is eternal. He's there with God the Father before all things, and as it says in Colossians, in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. Whereas from the creation, um, if, if Jesus is a creation, then he is temporal. Might be the first of creatures, but he's there, he's part of, he's limited by time. And from generation, the sense of generation says Jesus is himself internal to God. He is part of the Godhead, as we say sometimes. Whereas from that creation perspective, he's external to God because he's a creature. He's not the creator. All right. Questions, clarifications, pushbacks. I know this feels overly subtle or fine, but it's precisely, I mean, that old saying, the devil's in the details. Here's, here's the details, guys. This is the kind of detail where it's significant. Thank God for the early Christians who are willing and able to, to hash this stuff out. All right, so uh, Esther mentioned this text already. Go to John chapter 1. Foundational, foundational text for um, understanding the divinity of Christ. You probably know these words by heart, but we'll turn to that. John chapter 1, verse 1. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Who's the Word? Jesus. Jesus, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the light. Life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. See how John already is conveying a Trinitarian view of God, because he's showing how Jesus is at once both equal with God, but also distinct, right? It's not just modalism, Patrick, right? He's not just another form of God. He's a distinct person, and yet at the same time, he is equal with God the Father. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. He's the agent of creation. He himself is not a creature. He is the one who God used in order to bring forth creation. And going back to Augustine and church fathers through the ages, this is part of how they would say the Trinity is there right in Genesis chapter 1. Right in Genesis chapter 1. And how could that be? Because what is, what's there in Genesis 1? Uh, yeah, how does God create? What does he do? He speaks, right? In the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. Can anybody see? There we go. And the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. The word is the agent of creation. Jesus is that word with God in the beginning. Now, part of the reason that we can tell that this is so significant is negatively speaking, the, uh, the, the ways that Jehovah's Witnesses will futz with this text. Okay? Anybody know about this? Perhaps you've got a, a watchtower New Testament laying around your house somewhere that some nice person in a suit came to your door and left it with you, right? And if you were to open it to... John chapter 1, you would read something to this effect. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Lowercase g. They insert the indefinite article and say, well, yes, he was a God in the broad sense, a lowercase g, like an angel, right? But the greatest of them all. It's such a small thing. It's not the letter I, it's the letter A. But that letter A makes all the difference. Uh, But when we see that, no, Jesus was with God, he was God, and, of course, is God. So that's a, a key, essential text for us. And likewise, Colossians 1 alluded to already, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is who Jesus is. Next. Jesus is not only he, he's begotten of God, and he is identified with God in the scriptures. So if we're just doing brass tacks, biblical interpretation, how do we see this? Well, go ahead and open up your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. Turn to Philippians 2. 
as you're doing that, I want to share with you a couple of Old Testament scriptures. It's from, first from Isaiah chapter 45. It says, God Almighty, Yahweh, the Lord speaking. He says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. All right, put a pin in that. Keep that word in mind. I'm God, there is no other. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Likewise, Isaiah 42, verse 8 says, I am the Lord. In Hebrew, Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton. This is the the name above all names. That name, you know, I am who I am from Exodus 3 and Moses' encounter with the burning bush. That name, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. All right, with that in, in mind, then read Philippians 2 here, starting with verse 5. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus is equal with God the Father, but he relinquishes that high position and stoops down, becomes one of us. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, catch this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of what? Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Yahweh. Right? That Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. Paul is echoing and alluding to these passages from Isaiah. And in this deft way, as he's kind of doing like an overlay of this great hymn about Jesus with underneath of it, these um, uh, professions of God's distinctiveness and this just radical otherness from Isaiah, we see, wait a second, he's laying, laying these on top of one another to help us see Jesus is identified with God the Father. He himself is Yahweh incarnate. In ways that Paul is still struggling to articulate, he is distinct from God the Father, but he is still united with him and equal with him. Does that make sense? Yeah, Sandy. Um, when it says he emptied himself, yeah. is there uh, a way of understanding that is pouring himself into humanity? Yeah, I think so. Say more about that. Well, just that it's not that he became less of himself. Right. That Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, Sandy's asking, so when it talks about him emptying himself, is that just emptied out on the ground or is, it, you know, is he pouring himself out and pouring himself into us? I'd say absolutely yes. And the place where we see this, well, first of all, you have um, Pentecost, right? When we talk about the Holy Spirit, this is the outpouring of the Spirit. The Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus who lives and dwells in you and me. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus Christ who lives in us. And uh, one image that was used in the early church to describe the Spirit is that it was like a, um, with the perfume. You remember the perfume that was used to, to pour over Jesus. And they'd say, spiritually speaking, this is like the Holy Spirit. Because if, um, in his, through his death 
It's like the vial that holds the perfume is dashed and broken. But what happens when you do that? Now it fills the room. And now, so likewise, um, the, the, the great writers and teachers of the church would say, now Jesus fills all creation through his death, his resurrection, and his ascension at the Father's right hand, and the outpouring of the Spirit given to all of us. So that emptying is also ultimately an outpouring. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Ann. Sort of like how you're saying the sharing of authority. Yes. Yes, bingo. Yeah, that's a great connection. So I shared in the sermon that sharing of authority increases the authority. Or another image that I like to use is like the candlelight, right? When you, when you share the candlelight, it doesn't diminish the candlelight. It just it increases the light overall, right? So it is with that presence of Christ. Yeah, Bob. Same thing, I think, is in a sense the Lutheran distinctive. Hmm. That, um, Paul was a Lutheran, wasn't he? We yeah. want a God of power. Yeah. And, and when Adam grasped equality with God in the garden, or the Tower of Babel sought yep. equality with God, they're seeking his power. Yep. I mean, in all, all human idolatry is I want to be powerful. Right. Well, he's saying he elected to empty himself of his power and take on the form of absolute weakness, which was hanging on a cross. Right. So God's way of dealing with our power hunger was to actually go the other way. Absolutely. That's what Luther calls this, the, the theology of the cross. Yes, that if you want to see what God is like, that's why it says in, in Philippians 2, well, there's an interesting little um, translation thing here where it says, um, uh, um, let's see, and being found, uh, no, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It could also be translated because he was in the form of God. He did not count this equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, what's the difference in that, that translation? Um, what, that's, what that suggests is that this is God's very nature, to be self-giving and outpouring, precisely because Jesus is the image of the invisible God, precisely because Jesus shows us this is what God is like. You want to know what God is like? He's a God who pours himself out who's not grasping for power the way that Adam and Eve were, they were at the, the Tower of Babel, the way that Satan was from time eternal. Instead, what God is like is he gives himself away. And in giving self, himself away, his kingdom grows and expands. This is what he is like. Good, okay. Then let's keep pushing forward then. Next thing about Jesus, number six on your handout. <clears throat> Jesus is worshipped as God. He's worshipped as God. And there have been some great um, studies in the last decade or two um, from, from really serious scholars. If this is something that you're interested in, a guy by the name of uh, Larry Hurtado, who died just a couple of years ago, wrote a book, called, I think it's just called Jesus is Lord, where he demonstrates from the very earliest days um, that people were worshiping Jesus as God. They had, to use the fancy term, a high Christology, a high Christology. Another theologian, widely respected, worldwide known by the name of Richard Baucom, has also demonstrated this, that way before even these creeds were articulated, there was this high Christology, Christians worshiping Jesus as God. But you don't have to go even be into church history. You can go within the scriptures themselves. Go to John chapter 20, the day of his resurrection where there Jesus is, is with the disciples. Actually, I guess the week after, week after his resurrection, the eighth day, 
And Jesus is there with the disciples, and now also we've got our guy doubting Thomas, right? (laughs) Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe. And here's the money shot. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This profound profession is right there in the Gospels, and really that's what it's all leading to, what it's all going to. Poor Thomas, he gets a bad rap, doesn't he? Doubting Thomas does nothing less than give the most bold, profound profession of the divinity of Jesus than anybody in the Gospels. We don't call him that. But there it is. Jesus is worshipped as God already at the time of the Apostles. And it's there in the scriptures. We're not making this up. In the epistles, in the letters, Paul writes to Titus. He says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay? He is distinct from the Father and yet equal with the Father at the same time. This is the divinity of our Lord. Yeah, Bob. That one scripture in John 10 after he does the Good Shepherd, you uh-huh. mentioned it in the sermon, I have authority. He finishes, literally finishes that by saying, I and the Father are one. Yes. And everyone around him, his enemies, immediately picks stones up. They know exactly what he said. Yes. So... Not only is he God, he is one with the Father. I mean, the essence is, is he's, he's God ontologically, but yes. there's something about he and his Father that is... They're one. They're one. They're utterly united. I mean, the, the other great one along similar lines, of course, is John 8, 58, when Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. I'm, I am Yahweh, right? I am the Lord in your midst. Likewise, they pick up stones. They should have just had them carrying the stones with them, right? <laughs> we never know when we're going to need to be able to have to stone this guy. But th- they could see it. They could read it. And if we miss it, it's because we're not reading attentively. We don't have our eyes open. The fact It's right there. Jesus is equal to God the Father. All right, but one last one. We're already going a little bit over time. But just to, to bring it home and to underscore the point that we've already made. That if let's see, Jesus can't be our bridge if he doesn't reach both sides. He can't be our, be our bridge if he doesn't reach both sides. And the poet Lucy Shaw, Christian, in a, just this little poem, I love this. She says, you did the unthinkable. You built one bridge long enough, strong enough to link the unlinkable. Through our Lord Jesus, his death and his resurrection, his very person, 
The Father has done the unthinkable. He has linked the unlinkable, heaven and earth, God and man, through our Lord Jesus. If Jesus is not both God and man, this is what we're left with, right? The bridge is out. We can't reach up to God no matter how hard we try, no matter how good we are. We're lost. But the fact that he is, that he is God with us, we know that we have that salvation. So just a few closing thoughts, practical ones. of uh, Oh, a, a, an afterword here with Council of Nicaea. It was convened by Constantine in 325 AD. It addressed Arius' concerns and other matters, including the canon of the Bible, which books we include. St. Nicholas lost his cool, but here was the final vote. 316 to 2, y'all. Pretty good. It was like watching a Michigan State football game. That's, <laughs> I'm, I'm, still, I'm just trying to work through my pain with you all. That's what it is. Who was the other vote? I don't know who the other vote was. It's a great question. 316 to 2. So if you ever read any Da Vinci Code or Dan Brown or this kind of stuff that claims to say, oh, it was a power play. and No, they just suppressed the, the true teaching, what people really believe. Nothing could be further from the truth. Okay, God in his providential wisdom ensured that the truth was out. But also through Arius and through bringing forth that heresy, orthodoxy was able to be made known. They were able to more clearly articulate the divinity of Jesus, and we are all blessed by that work still today. All right, so some, some last thoughts then on how not to be an Arian. First of all, pray to Jesus. You can pray to Jesus. When we, when we pray, we teach this to our kids, like you can pray to God the Father. You can also pray to Jesus. Address your prayers to Jesus because he is equal with God the Father, okay? And the Holy Spirit. So really, it's like the, the nature, sometimes it's just the nature of, of the prayer that you address to different persons of the Trinity. Of course, all of them ultimately come to God. Um, secondly, get comfy with the tension because like we've talked about this, it's, this is one of those key, this is perhaps the foundational key paradox that Jesus is at once 100% God and 100% man, right? These heresies of the divinity of Christ fall off on one side or the other. This one falls off on the all humanity or too much of the humanity. We're going to look at other heresies where it was too much of the divinity. Say, well, how could that be? Well, we'll look at that in coming weeks. But getting comfortable with that tension, living in that paradox. Thirdly, duel with JWs. All right, so if that Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, you say, come in, let's talk about Arianism and what my pastor taught me about how St. Nicholas treated Arius. No. no. <laughs> Love our enemies. Pray for them, bless those who persecute us. But don't be afraid of these things. It's out there, okay? There are modern-day Arians. And so I say, follow St. Nick's example kindly, kindly, all right? We're not going around slapping people, but we are standing fast on the truth of God. All right, I know you're all on pins and needles now and maybe even changed your answers as we went through. Quiz answers. Jesus saves us by providing the perfect example for us to follow. True or false? True. False. False. He, he is the perfect example, but that's not how he saves us. He saves us by being the perfect sacrifice. Secondly, there was a time in history when Jesus did not exist. True or false? False. 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 He's eternal. There from all time. Number three, 
Jesus is one with God the Father, not merely like him. True or false? True. True. He's homoousios, not homoousios. Number four, Jesus is the greatest of all God's creations. False. That's a really tricky one, right? But it's false because he's not a creation. Trick question. And number five, since we believe in the Trinity, we don't believe in God's unity. True or false? It's false. We believe in one God, triune and united, hence the word triune unity. All right, good. Good talk today. Thank you, guys. For you, those of you who are sticking around for Roots of Faith, take a breather. We'll get our lunch ready, and we'll reconvene in about 10 minutes. Thanks very much. You know, there's a fad right now.